Welcome to the Speak Up Talk Radio Network. I'm your hostess, Pat Rulo, and today I'm just so happy to share a Firebird Book Award-winning author with you. He is James A. Ross, and his two winning books are titled Hunting Teddy Roosevelt and Cold Water Revenge. Jim has at various times been a Peace Corps volunteer in the Congo, a congressional staffer, and a Wall Street lawyer. His books have won many awards and accolades, and he is a frequent contributor to, and a several times winner of, the live storytelling competition, Cabin Fever Story Slam, and he has appeared as a guest storyteller on the Moth main stage. His live performances, online stories, newsletter sign-up, and much more can be found at his website, jamesrossauthor.com. And I am so interested to find out more, so let's go. Welcome to the network, James. Happy to be here, Pat. Oh, glad to have you here. Shall I call you James or Jim? The only person who ever called me James was my mother, and that's when I did something that she wanted to call to my attention uh, and never have me do it again. <laughs> so, uh, otherwise, I'm Jim. I will say, welcome to the network, Jim. How's that? It feels safer, right? <laughs> it's perfect. Not going to get in trouble. I feel the same way when people call me Patricia. I'm thinking of my mom opening up the front door and calling for me, and I'm thinking, oh, no, what did I do now? <laughs> Yes, and there's always a long list of possibilities, wasn't it? Always, yes, yes. I, I managed to do some interesting things along the way, as I'm sure you did too. Well, those were the days before cell phones and helicopter parents and GPS and all that stuff. So when you left the house in the morning, you were on your own until dinner time, and that was plenty of time for adventure. Oh, absolutely. And then after dinner, it was when the street lights go on, you come in. Yeah, yeah. pretty much. <laughs> Uh, the good old days. Well, anyway, congratulations on the book wins. Yes, and I've uh, actually accumulated a few more since uh, we last spoke. In addition to the Fire Book Awards, Hunting Teddy Roosevelt has uh, won the American Book Fest Fiction Award for uh, Historical Adventure. It uh, was shortlisted for a Goethe Historical Fiction Award. Uh, it won the uh, Independent Press Award for uh, Historical Fiction, and it was a finalist for the uh, National Indie Excellence Award, wow. again, in Historical Fiction. So it's done well. And um, Cold Water Revenge, which came out in April, uh, has actually won two. It won the uh, yours as well as the uh, American Book Fest Fiction Award for Mystery Suspense in the hard-boiled crime category. Mm -hmm. So um, it, both books have been on a roll, which is extremely satisfying. That is satisfying. You pour your heart out and put it out there and risk, uh, you know, a feedback you may not want to hear. And then when it all comes back good, it's just so gratifying to feel that all of that work, all of you that you put into this is, is paid off and people appreciate it. Well, it's validation as well. I mean, uh, you know, uh, when other people are publishers and specifically are willing to risk their money in publishing your book, that's like step one of validation. Mm -hmm. And then when they win awards, you know, that's you know, icing on the cake. But the real test is, as you know, for you know, storytellers is people who listen to the story. You know, either, you know, if it's online or in performance or they buy your book. 
And I have to tell you, publishing two books um, during the first worldwide bookstore shutdown since Gutenberg invented the printing press, um, you know, was a particular challenge. Marketing and sales during COVID uh, has taken a completely different direction from historic book, book promotion, you know, book tours, and so on and so forth. And it's a brave new world out there with uh, a lot of experimentation and a lot of trial and error. If I were to recommend to somebody um, who just got a contract to publish their book, I would have serious conversations with the publisher about um, you know, the marketing and sales plan should bookstores and uh, you know, go into lockdown again or people like printers have, who can't work from home mm-hmm. uh, you know, not being able to get to work. This is a very you know, interesting time in publishing, Esther. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And I know you do public speaking as well. I do a Mm -hmm. lot of public speaking. And when that came to a grinding halt, it was interesting to try to figure uh, alternative ways, you know, Zoom and all of those other all of those other ways. But still, there's there's nothing better than going into a bookstore, having a book signing at a bookstore, speaking Mm -hmm. to people live with the feedback from the audience. So there's a lot to be considered for new authors to figure out how are you going to move forward with the marketing and promotion after the book is finished. It's a challenge. I, I wrote an article, a guest article for Dame's Docket uh, on this subject, you know, how to market and sell in the unique um, place and time we, we find ourselves in. And, uh, no, there's a lot of people who work on it, but uh, headlines, just to save your listeners from going to my website, although I actually don't want to save them from doing that. But you know, the gist of it is advertising still counts, mm-hmm. um, although I think it was James Wanamaker, the uh, uh, founder of the first department store, who said more than 100 years ago that 50% or more of all advertising is wasted. The problem is we don't know which 50%. (laughs) And I don't think that statistic has changed very much in 120 years. Uh, But, uh, you know, the next step in the game, of course, is um, connecting advertising with opportunities to buy. And that's where COVID has moved in. You know, the the opportunity of um, uh, doing appearances at bookstores or having people want, you know, show up and, uh, look for your books, et cetera. That piece is the one that got the most disrupt- disruptive. Yes. Second only to when the stores opened again, one of the groups that could not work from home turned out to be the printers. Mm-hmm. So the stores are open, but your book is on backlog and nobody can buy it. Right. Um, but in the, the third piece, um, which connects to, uh, or not to the second, is somebody's heard about your book, they looking for a venue to buy it. Fortunately, the uh, places like Amazon and, and other places where you can buy e-reader versions were active during all of this. The final connection is somebody's got to hit a buy button. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of you know sale, marketing and sales research going on right now about, okay, you've got an ad. People know about the book. They go to the locations where they can get it, which is now online through e-retailers, what makes them buy? 
And uh, it turns out that there's uh, you know more than one answer to that, which is um, you know of real use to you know folks who storytellers basically who want to get as many um, uh, readers as they can. And the uh, experimentation seems to be uh, around push advertising connected to uh, discount price, price promotions, but for a temporary period. So you got to coordinate your ads um, with the, uh, a buy button, if you will, in the ads where somebody can go to actually purchase the book and then coordinate that with a price promotion for the really thousands of people out there who get push emails every day from different book services looking to get, you know, a bargain. And uh, the trick is not to, to, to use that model but not – cannibalize your um, higher price sales mm -hmm. and figuring out which audience is which and how to how and when to target them uh, that's an evolving art mm -hmm. and there's folks out there right now trying to figure it out but that's our brave new world it is our brave new world and yet many authors I'm sure who are listening to this are thinking I just want to write <laughs> and, you know, you don't want to have this new learning curve and try to figure all of this out. They just want to sit there and write. So, yeah, that's that's a whole other arm of being an author. You know, I totally understand. We, you know, we spend years on our craft trying to get to a level of you know, competence where if we have a story that, you know, we, we want to tell and we think readers want to read, we can tell it well enough so that, you know, it gets published and we're not embarrassed. But we used to think of that as the finish line. Uh, you know, getting an agent or, you know, his job it is to find you a publisher and somebody else does all the work. The reality today is it's not the finish line. It's the starting line. Mm -hmm. And with consolidation in the book industry and, and uh, so forth, um, when you're at the starting line, the success of, or failure of this thing you may have spent years working on is going to depend in large part on your willingness to uh, enter into a world you know nothing about, or most people do, which is marketing and sales. But the alternative is you've written this, you know, wonderful book, and it just disappears into the ether. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I can't think of anything sadder. Yes. Thank you for talking about this. Um, not something I expected we'd chat about, but I think it's extremely important, especially these days. All right, I want to dig into your two books. Now, Hunting Teddy Roosevelt was your debut novel, and it's a just a beautiful blend of historical facts with fiction and adventure. Give us a little peek into that book so we can entice our listeners. It takes place in 1909. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt has just left the White House after uh, his second term, uh, promising to follow George Washington's example of not running for a third consecutive term, but underline the word consecutive. Um, there are a lot of people uh, who wanted to see Roosevelt out of politics permanently, uh, most, you know, and most of them were active in Wall Street. Um, it's, it's a well-known fact that uh, J.P. Morgan, John Rockefeller, and a few others literally bought the 1900 convention that nominated William McKinley, the Republican convention. And uh, they, they basically they bought themselves a president. But unfortunately, six months into his term, McKinley was assassinated. 
And who did they get instead? His vice president, Theodore Roosevelt, who came from the opposite wing. The um, progressive wing was, for all intents and purposes, anti-business as much as McKinley was pro-business. So they bought and paid for the convention. They got themselves a president and six months into it. They get Teddy Roosevelt, who spends the next seven and a half years passing child labor laws, fair, you know, pure food and drug administration uh, law, and, and, and so forth. It was just a colossal pain in their neck. So when he decided to do him a favor and follow Washington's example um, and, and not run for a third term, some of them took um, action to make sure that he did not come back for a third term. And uh, the way I found out about this is I was doing some research, and I ran across an article in a 1909 uh, Naples newspaper that reported that the local police had taken a anarchist off the ship that was carrying Roosevelt to Africa and arrested him for trying to stab Roosevelt with a knife. Now, I had not heard of this attempted assassination before, nor had anybody else I consulted, nor was I able to find anything else in English anywhere on the uh, Internet. It was just this little blurb in a Naples newspaper, uh, reprinted a few times later by other Italian newspapers, but that was it. So now this leads to two intriguing questions. Um, one, um, how can something like an assassination of an American president uh, not appear in the history books, not appear in any of the autobiographies, not appear anywhere in English. You know, it was obviously suppressed, but by um, whom? And then, um, and why? And then secondarily, uh, Roosevelt's off, you know, to a part of the world where, you know, before penicillin and so on and so forth, uh, he might not come back anyway. He's leading the largest safari ever undertaken, uh, 264 men, 20 tons of supplies and equipment, and they simply disappear into the jungles of Africa for a year, where who knows what's going to happen, and he may not come back alive anyway. Um, so anyway, hunting Teddy Roosevelt is my attempt to answer those two questions. Who suppressed it uh, and how? And why did somebody uh, try to kill him uh, while he was on the way over on the boat? And in the case of this piece of fiction I wrote, written uh, while he was in Africa. Mm. And uh, it, it, it follows history pretty closely. Uh, my candidates uh, for who might have done it are, are laid out with, um, uh, I hope, some convincing precision. It was a fun book to write, and I hope uh, um, I, ho I hope that some um, actual historian, a professional, takes up where I left off because mm -hmm. this uh, this is not the kind of mystery that should necessarily be finally uh, considered resolved or put to bed because some uh, fiction author has taken a crack at it. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. No, this is an opening to some, some more investigations. This is fascinating, just absolutely fascinating. And it also, you know, when we see some of the shenanigans that are going on in politics today, people think it's something new, but it's been going on for a very, very long time. Very, very interesting. 
So then how did you segue into your your next novel, which is a, your debut mystery novel, Cold Water Revenge? Well, actually, they were written in reverse order. Oh, okay. I, um, I wrote the mystery novel first, and uh, I was actually at my then-agent's office uh, prepared to sign a uh, a multi-book contract and uh, for a mystery series beginning with that. And um, fortunately, this was 2008, right at, or 2009, right after the crash. We got a phone call, and the publisher had backed out. So um, I was sitting with him in his office, commiserating. Which, by the way, uh, you know, a great office. I won't mention the guy's name. Um, but it, it, he had put together two uh, Midtown and Manhattan brownstones and created like a perfect Hogwarts Dumbledore library <laughs> scenario. <laughs> I mean, his office looked like Dumbledore's library. You know, big fireplace, wow. book, you know, floor to ceiling books, windows out on Madison Avenue. It was um, cozy and intimidating at the same time. <laughs> but, um, you know, he said to me candidly, look, it's a, it's a good book. It'll eventually get published, but, you know, no time soon because this crash has put a, uh, a dent in the uh, publishing pipeline that's not going to free up for any time soon, and particularly not for debut murder mystery novels. If you were, a, you know, a New York ball player or a Kennedy, I could probably still get this published, but... Right now, it's time to start on your next book. So we were kicking around some ideas, and uh, he had written, himself written, a book called uh, Writing the Blockbuster Novel. And in it, he had his formula for doing exactly that. And I, well, I don't quite remember the entire thing because I didn't follow it too closely. The three top things um, caught my attention. One was exotic locale, and um, I'd spent a couple of years in the Peace Corps in the Congo when I was a young man, and I always wanted to set a book uh, in that locale. So check the box. I'm going to write a book set in Africa. In um, fact, it was larger-than-life character, and I'd actually met quite a few of the larger-than-life characters when uh, I was in the Congo, including uh, Idi Amin of Uganda and a few other folks, but I couldn't quite mm, figure out how I was going to make a story around those you know, youthful connections. Uh, but his third category, large uh, global stakes, kind of pulled it all together for me. So I've got Teddy Roosevelt, uh, Africa, larger than life stakes. And, um, uh, and I, and, and post Congo, I, I had, uh, Spent time on Capitol Hill, so I felt I knew the political world pretty well. And then on Wall Street for many decades, so I figured I knew J.P. Morgan's world pretty well. And as I'm trying to answer these questions I was talking about before, um, you know, how was the attempted assassination of Roosevelt suppressed? By who? Why? You know, and so on and so forth. Everything just started coming together. I've got an exotic locale, larger-than-life character. Global stakes, which uh, will he come back again and run for president, and will he address the uh, the ugly politics in Europe going on at the time, which you know, were the buildup for World War One. And uh, my answer to those questions 
uh, are in the book. I think that I know why the uh, attempted assassination was suppressed. I think I demonstrated uh, logically uh, who did it. And I, um, in telling the story, come to the conclusion that had Roosevelt run for president again in 2012 and won, uh, World War One would have been avoided. And the world as we know it today would be very different. Because if there's no World War One, there's no World War Two. And if there's no World War Two, the Middle East and Asia look completely different from the way they do today in probably a very positive way. Mm-hmm. This is so fascinating. I knew when I was speaking about your bio, being in the Peace Corps and the congressional staffer and a Wall Street attorney, I knew that all of that came together to create these books. It almost had to. It was just serendipitous. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I, I would say that the murder mystery of Coldwater Revenge was um, yeah, easier to write in some ways because it's, it's a Romana class of the town and the times I grew up in. And, you know, uh, I won't say I settled uh, old scores, but there's a few zingers in there and some dead bodies and some <laughs> recognizable suspects if you come from the town I came in, but come, came from. But uh, Hunting Teddy Roosevelt was, um, although it came first, it was actually written probably 10 years later. Got it. Got it. All right. And now you've got a second book in the Cold Water series, Cold Water Confession? Yeah. I The contract I signed was for three books. Mm-hmm. I have to deliver book number two uh, actually in about 10 weeks. And that is um, keeping me up at night. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the, the biggest challenge for that book is I had written the sequel pretty close to... Um, the time I finished the the first book, Cold War Revenge, and before I had an agent for it. So the original plot uh, structure in both books were two bachelor brothers involved with, well, there were two bachelor brothers with with sleuths, and in the first book, Cold War Revenge, they were both romantically involved with the same woman, and all hell broke loose when one brother began to suspect the other of helping her to cover up a murder. And this was all fine and, and, and well until I got an agent and he read the book and uh, agreed to take me on only if I made certain changes, including um, making one of the brothers married instead of a bachelor. Uh, his theory was that the uh, main sleuth was a uh, unlikable Wall Street jerk, and that the uh, only way to humanize him was to make his brother married so that the jerk brother can be seen as the beloved uncle and, you know, otherwise acquire a soft side that the re- so the readers wouldn't be completely turned off by him. Um, which, you know, was all fine and good, except I'd already written a sequel where I had to bachelor brothers going at it in their second oh. you know attempted crime solving and it's sort of like computer programming you should change something that big the ripple effect throughout the book to make it practically unrecognizable by the time you get to the end yeah so it, it's been quite a challenge uh writing the second one 
Oh my, yes, all that unraveling so that you could basically mm -hmm. just scrap it and start over. That's a rough one uh, because you already were close to it as well. So you've got to separate yourself kind of emotionally, I would think. Well, the emotional part, actually, it should have been the hardest, but he was pretty blunt. He said that, you know, your main character is a Wall Street jerk. <laughs> and my first answer was, oh, no, my main character is me. What are you talking about? <laughs> and um, you know, how do you get past that one? And, um, um, but, you know, the secondary problem, which I'm still struggling with, is in, in the murder mystery field, um, you know, you link clues mm -hmm. uh, in scenes uh, that, uh, you know, if you have to go back and revise big chunks either or, or cut words or whatever, uh, you can be left with gaps yes. in the, um, you know, the puzzle, if you will. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, the, the thing about murderers is people read them for different reasons, but uh, one of the reasons, of course, is to solve the puzzle. And when you make major changes uh, in a book that's already written, um, it, uh, it, it's an art in itself to get the same information back in in a coherent way so that your readers aren't confused or it doesn't, you know, begin to look like, uh, you know, somebody took a hatchet job to your manuscript. Mm -hmm. Well, you've got your work cut out for you. Yeah, and only 10 weeks to go, yeah. so stay tuned. <laughs> I will stay tuned. Keep me posted on that. All right. Well, as we begin to wrap up, I want to make sure we're not missing anything that you wanted to uh, talk about today. Well, I, I have a newsletter um, that uh, I started about two months ago, and I've been getting some uh, pretty good feedback on that. Okay. So if anybody is interested in following uh, the saga of the uh, – these debut novels and, and uh, uh, their successes and challenges. I, I uh, point everyone to my website, jamesrossauthor.com, and there's a sign-up for the newsletter there. There's also um, a growing page of live performances. Uh, I did one the other night for the Irish American Writers and Artists uh, Salon, uh, West Coast Salon, where I read... Um, from my uh, Pushcart-nominated short story, O Sapor. That seemed to be go over pretty well. So um, go to the website. There's a lot there. By all means, buy the books when they come out. But in the meantime, there's stories and performances and uh, a bunch of other stuff that uh, may be worth a monthly visit. Yes, absolutely. JamesRossAuthor.com. I was over there yesterday or the day before and watched one of your videos where you were speaking about your girlfriend moving in with you in the Congo and I thought that was that was a fascinating story you did a great job with that one so yes I hope everybody heads over jamesrossauthor.com this was so exciting to talk with you today I, I knew that there was that there was a lot to find out about your books hunting Teddy Roosevelt and cold water revenge by author James A. Ross Jim, thank you so much for today, and please keep us in mind for future books because I would love to have an opportunity to talk with you again. Oh, that, that would work for me very well, Pat. Appreciate you having me on.